Well, my mentor minute might be two minutes today because there's something I want to share with you that most of you wouldn't know. But uh, in 1974 of May, my wife Kay and I um, drove up here to, uh, to plant a church. And uh, I got a job with the Reston Country Club, which is now Hidden Creek Country Club. And in June of 74, we had our first Bible study. And uh, as a matter of fact, let's put that picture up right now if we could. Uh, that, was, that was a little bit later on. That was like maybe November or something because I'm wearing a sweater. But the, the, the point being is that in June of 74, that makes RBC uh, 45 years old this month. And my, my thank you is to all of you and the thousands of people that have made this possible. This has never been the Mike Minter Show. It has been many thousands of people that have made this possible. And this past week at kids camp, I try to avoid this place at kids camp, but they always lure me in to do some skit, which they did again this past week. At <laughs> any rate, I'm in my office and I'm trying to study, I'm trying to think. And uh, Bernie right across the hall is in one of the large rooms. He's one of the helpers here. And he, he was asking the kids, hey kids, uh, Who's got a joke? And, and one kid gets up and he says, uh, why did the cow cross the road to get to the other side? Yeah, that's what I thought. And I'm, I'm, I'm like this. What do you call a dog in the desert? A hot dog. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying to concentrate on my study of Joseph. It's not going well. Focus, Mike, focus. Now the kid gets up and says, why was the mushroom invited to the party? because he's a fun guy. <laughs> and I thought, so this is what has happened through these years. But uh, 200 volunteers, 350 kids. I wouldn't have dreamt this. I would never have dreamt this in a thousand years, what has happened. But it's really the grace of God that has made it what it is. But he's worked through thousands and thousands of lives. So this is my special thanks to you. And to my wife, who has been with me through thick and thin and has seen me through some pretty difficult times by giving me good advice. And uh, it's just been a great joy to, to be here. I'm just one cog in the wheel. And that cog says, turn to Genesis 39. All righty. <laughs> Blessings. Genesis chapter 39, as we are racing through this book. Here we go. If you weren't here last week, let me give you a quick review. Joseph has been sold into slavery in the process of honoring his father to go look for his brothers who are 60 miles away to check up on them. They themselves have been very evil. They have not been, been very uh, 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 good people, good brothers. And so Jacob says, go check on your brothers. He goes. And while he's there, because he has had this dream that said they would bow down to him, they say, let's see what becomes of this man's dreams. And they say, let's throw him into a pit. They throw him into a pit. They sell him into slavery. And then all of a sudden, there's an abrupt stop. And we jump in to Judah and Tamar in chapter 38. We talked last week to say, this shows the contrast between Judah, who is so evil, fled toward immorality, lied, cheated, every, he was just an awful person. And then it shows you the dramatic difference between a person of real character in the life of Joseph in chapter 39. But we continue to see the providential hand of God, that God is taking the good, the bad, and the ugly of humanity, and he is using that 
to bring to fruition his sovereign purposes and plans to make sure the Messiah arrives right on time. And it was through Judah, who has relations with who he thought was to be a prostitute, Tamar, but it wasn't. It was his daughter-in-law, and it's through that line that Perez comes, and it's through that line that David and the Messiah come. So God is providentially in charge of all these, these, these situations. Now, today we're going to cover chapter 39, Lord willing, and I'm going to read the first seven verses and pray and dive into the text. Now just please listen carefully. This message out of Joseph's life is absolutely profound. Here we go. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered, and he lived in the house of the Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So he left in Joseph's care everything he had. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. Father, there is more than we can handle here today regarding our own soul. And I would pray for any that are here today that maybe are visiting or don't know you in a personal way that today they would see their need for just that. And so, Father, open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of your law. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you got the setting. Joseph was 17 years old when he gets sold into slavery. My guess is... He's now been in Potiphar's house for a while. He had to learn the language. He had to learn some of the customs. Uh, what was going on during that time? He might have just had some menial labor. But now he might be in his mid-20s or so. We don't know for certain. But Potiphar recognizes something in Joseph. And it's interesting that what appears to be a downward spiral in his life is actually a trajectory toward greatness because of God's providential working. Things may look one way, but in the eyes of God, they may be totally different. And that's one of the things we want to just see in this particular text. So the Lord was with Joseph, and it says that four times. It wants to remind us the Lord is with us as long as we are with the Lord. He was obedient. He followed everything he was supposed to do. We don't find that true in other people in Scripture. For example, it says that Jonah fled from the presence of the Lord. Is that even possible? Psalm 39 says, where could I go that you're not there? I could make my bed in the depths of the, of the earth and you are there. God says he's, he's omnipresent, he's everywhere. So what does it mean Jonah fled from the presence of the Lord? He didn't flee from the geographical presence of the Lord. He fled, fled from the will of the Lord the moral and ethical presence of the Lord. And that's exactly what has taken place here. We find that in this particular situation, Joseph is with the Lord. He's obedient. He has done everything he's supposed to do. 
and yet things don't seem to be going well. So here's what happened. Joseph listens to his father, and his father says, I want you to go check up on your brothers. I don't trust them. And he had plenty of reason not to trust them. We've already studied that. So Joseph doesn't just go down the street. He goes when he's equivalent from here to Baltimore. I mentioned that last week. It's about a 60-mile journey to find his brothers. And when he finds them, because of the dream and their jealousy, because of his coat of many colors, they throw him into this cistern and sell him. Now, I want you to pause for a moment. You have done what is right. You have obeyed your father. You have obeyed your God. And you get sold into slavery? What kind of a God is that? And see, the reason that we have these encounters here in Scripture is a reflection of how we should or shouldn't act. There's no moral commentary, hardly ever. You just see how God works things out. You begin to see it, whether we do things that are wrong or things that are right. And so here's Joseph. He does what is right, and it looks as though things aren't going well. And yet Potiphar, Potiphar notices, it says that Potiphar saw that the Lord was with him, that Jehovah, that Yahweh was with him. Did he witness to Potiphar? When Potiphar brought him down and, and bought him from the Ishmaelites, did he interview Joseph and say, tell me about your land? Tell me about the place you're from. Tell me about your God. They did that with Jonah on board the ship. The, the, the men, the pagans on board the ship said, tell us about your God. Who's causing all these storms and all these difficulties? Is it your God? In this case, everything is going well for Potiphar. And he recognizes that God is in this man's life. There is a consistency in Joseph's life. There's a consistency whether he is at home whether he is abroad, wherever he happens to be, in all four chapters of his life, Joseph with his family, Joseph with Potiphar, Joseph next week in prison, and then in a few weeks, Joseph with Pharaoh. Those are the chapters in his life. And there's a consistency in this man's character all the way through. Joseph could be trusted in absolutely every single area, and it says so that that. He didn't, he didn't have to worry. Potiphar didn't have to worry about a thing. Potiphar is a very powerful man, an extremely influential man in this kingdom as he works for Pharaoh. The temptation strikes. And it's interesting to note the consistency of a person's character and how that plays out. Having good character one time here or there doesn't mean you have character. It's just one time here or there. People can be like a chameleon. You know, I've mentioned his name before, but um, when I think of Joe Gibbs, Joe Gibbs had an incredible reputation. There were people that didn't like him because of his position and his standing with the Lord, and he was very public with his faith. But there were people that couldn't ever point a finger and say, this man lacks integrity. He never said a filthy word in the locker room. He didn't curse. He didn't do anything. He didn't cheat. He didn't do any of that. He lived a life at home, in the marketplace, in the church, at work, with his NASCAR team, on the football field, there's a consistency there. And the reason a lot of Christians don't want to be called out for being a Christian is because they know they don't have consistency there. They're afraid that if somebody from the church shows up at their office and says, oh yeah, George here goes to RBC or Christian Fellowship or whatever, he go George goes to church? you got to be kidding me. 
And then George kind of hides because George's language and his dirty jokes and everything else are different in church than they are in his home and on the golf course and other places. But you see, a person that is consistent in their character, God is with them. It doesn't mean things will always go well, but God is with them. And when a person lives that kind of life, there are many people that are outside the kingdom that will look at that person and say, I may never become a Christian, but if I do, I want to be like Joe Gibbs, or I want to be like this person or that person, or I want to be like Joseph. There is something that is taking place that is even causing Potiphar to take note. But now temptation strikes. Verse 7. Now Joseph was well built and handsome, part of verse 6, and after a while his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come lie with me. Now this isn't just a study in temptation. Uh, there are plenty of places in the Bible that you could study temptation. Lots of different places. But this is certainly one place. It's a real genuine account of a young man away from his parents, outside of his own land, by himself, who had to have felt to some degree cheated by God because things weren't going as well as he thought they should be going, although that never seems to surface in Joseph's life. He never murmurs, he never whines, he never complains about anything. And she says, come lie with me. And so again, he might be 25 years old or so. He's away from home. Now put yourself in this situation for a moment and pause and say, either a man or a woman, and just simply say, how would I respond in time of temptation, whether it's a moral temptation or an ethical temptation, when all I've seen in my life is I've been obedient to God and now every single thing is falling apart? The trajectory of my life I walk 60 miles to obey my father, and God tells me to obey my father. I then get thrown into a pit. I then get sold into slavery, and now here I am. Things are spiraling out of control. Where are you? How, have you cast me off forever, as the psalmist says? He doesn't seem to have that, that, that thought in his mind. He is absolutely consistent in his character. And character, somebody once said, is what you are in the dark. Character is what you are when nobody's watching. And here this man has extremely great character. Now, you might ask this question. I asked it a long time ago. I said, how do we know this is a temptation? Maybe she wasn't all that good looking. I, I, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah. She was beautiful. How do I know? Because it's presented as a temptation. There wouldn't have been a temptation if she was 95 years old or something. This was a temptation. Furthermore, she's married to Potiphar. Potiphar is a very powerful man. He could have almost any woman he wanted in the kingdom. You can be sure she was attractive. And this was a tremendous temptation in his life. Now, let's take a look at verses 8 and 9. Let's just kind of follow this storyline. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How could I then do such a wicked thing and sin against God? He is telling her about his God. She's thinking, God? I don't care anything about God. What do you... You mean... 
you're afraid you're going to sin against a God. No, I'm, I don't want to sin against God. I don't want to sin against Jehovah God. That's the seriousness with which he realizes that God is in his presence. Whether he's alone, whether it's dark, no matter what, his, his character is absolutely consistent. And here again, another witness, another statement about God. Reminds me of, of um, the whole the, the statement you've heard me say before that uh, I don't even know where I got it from. It was years and years ago. But the power of influence is greater than the power of position. He is, he is being trained through the trials to be put in a position where he is going to have, he's going to have a, an influence, a power toward people that have great position. The power of influence is greater than the power of position. We look at, at uh, Daniel. Daniel did everything right, and yet he gets taken into captivity in Babylon, and he stands before Nebuchadnezzar, much like Pharaoh here, one of the most powerful men in the universe at that particular time. And Nebuchadnezzar was an evil man. But after a while, as he watched Daniel, he changed his tune. And in Daniel chapter 4, you find Nebuchadnezzar giving his whole testimony about the sovereign God who does what he wants to do. And that seems to be when Nebuchadnezzar came to the truth. All because of Daniel having consistent character. Character is absolutely huge when it's consistent. When a person is one way at the office and one way at home and one way on the golf course or whatever, that's a chameleon. That's not a, that's not a, a, a Christian that's living out a consistent life. And this is what it looks like to do that. So he says, how could I do, and do this and sin against God? King David did not have that thought in his mind when he saw Bathsheba. King David didn't say, I'm alone, I'm king, I can call for her, nobody will see, nobody will know what's going on, because that's the natural intent of the human heart. We think God isn't there at 12 o'clock at night when we're on the internet. Oh, he's not here. Really? Just because it's dark and nobody's around? He's there. He is there. But there's no place that we can go where God is not. But when we don't see God in that light, when we don't fear God, which is the beginning of wisdom, when we don't do that, we tend to put him aside. And that's when our character falls apart. He saw God as present, and here again, she's standing there, and this is a serious, serious matter of this particular temptation. Look at verse 10. We read this. And though he, uh, she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. There's a lot in that statement. It isn't just that he refused this one time. He refused not even to get close to the temptation. Romans 14 says, Make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Don't make any provision at all to fulfill its lust. Because this is how temptation comes. It comes day by day. On the cell phone, the internet, the advertisements, the TV... The all It's day by day. It doesn't come just once in a while. It is there all the time because we live in the midst of the kingdom of darkness even though we belong to the kingdom of light. And that light needs to shine before a lost world with consistent character. You're going to fall, I'm going to fall from time to time, but overall the consistency of our lives no matter where we happen to be. Let's look at verses 11 and 12. We read this. One day he went into the house to attend his duties. None of the household servants was, was uh, inside. So, alone, all right? She caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. 
But he left the cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. All right? First Timothy chapter 2 says, Flee youthful lust. Flee youthful lust. Judah, in chapter 38, fled toward lust. He is fleeing from lust. Or as Peter says, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. This is the revelation of a man living a consistent life, though he is still a sinner because he comes through the line of Adam. He is not perfect, yet there's no sin recorded in his life, but he is living out a very, very consistent life. Psalm 101 says, I will put no evil thing before mine eyes. How much TV would that eliminate? How many movies would that eliminate if we took that seriously? Proverbs 7 has a very similar storyline. There's always these little links back to things that we see where in Proverbs 7, there's an immoral woman. And she says, we're alone. My husband's gone on a long trip. She says, we're alone. My husband's out. He's, he's doing some business deal someplace. We're fine. The servants aren't even here. Alone, in the dark, there's still somebody present. His name is God. He's there. And Joseph knew that. And when you see this, you begin to see the flow of consistent, powerful character. Because God is with him because he is with God. He hasn't fled from the presence of the Lord. He's willing to obey whether he lives or dies. 13 through 18. Listen carefully. And again, a piece of garment plays a major role here. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been, taught, has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. Just a complete fabrication, slander of his character. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. The Hebrew slave you brought came to me to be sport with me or to, to make me look foolish. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. The Bible often repeats certain storylines. For example, we have the coat of many colors. And when Joseph's brothers take the coat from him, they dip it in goat's blood and they bring it back to their father Jacob and say, do you recognize this coat? That's my son Joseph's coat. Surely a wild beast has devoured him. So the coat of many colors to the brothers was the death of the dream. We're not going to bow down to him. To Jacob, it was the death of a son. It played an integral role. Then last week, when Tamar sleeps with Judah, she wants three uh, articles. And one of those is a cord, some sort of a sash or something that goes around his waist. Another piece of cloth. And once she is discovered as being pregnant, Judah says she needs to be burned to death. And she says, oh, by the way, Judah, just want to let you know, the man who owns these things is the father of the child. So another line is played out. And now we have it here. Another coat, another cloak. 
These are little reminders of subtle themes that are all throughout Scripture. Whether it's meals or clothing or whatever, there, there are these little storylines that just keep being picked up and amplified as time goes on. They cast lots for his clothing, Jesus. We, we just see this over and over and over again. Because all of these storylines, the little things of life that God uses providentially to bring certain things to pass are very, very important. But keep this in mind, it still wasn't true. The dream had not died and Joseph was not dead. It wasn't true. And what she is saying is not true. And she will be found out. Because all of these, all of these things that God is so sovereignly in charge of, he lets man run and do what he wants to do, but still he's going to catch man in his own sin. Matter of fact, the New Testament says he gives people over to a reprobate mind. He says he gives man over to his own way when man refuses to follow him. And we continue to see a nation spiraling out, a world spiraling out of control. All right. Now here's another problem with this. If she sleeps with him, he could be thinking, this will give me entree to a lot of power. I could give advice to her, that she could give advice to her husband. I might be able to get out of here. I might be moved up in rank. But if I do that, I will not be honoring my God. If I don't sleep with her, she is likely to become my enemy. And that's exactly what has happened here. I could die as a result of this. And what's so interesting is that Potiphar has Joseph put in prison rather than put to death. That speaks volumes. I think Potiphar is thinking, boy, this guy seems pretty consistent, and I kind of know my wife pretty well. He's probably not guilty, but I don't want to get in trouble, so I better do something. That would have been a death sentence right off. No question about it. But he gets thrown in prison, where again, he'll be found faithful with the prison guard. We'll see that next week. Just continuing the, the continuing resurrection of this man's life through difficulty. And so now she's become his enemy. All right. Now we look at verses 19 through the end of the chapter. We read this. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all those that were, that were in there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph, and he gave him success whatever he did. Here, what looks to be spiraling down, everywhere Joseph goes, he is seen as a person of character and a person who can be trusted. And yet Potiphar must have had second thoughts. He had trusted Joseph implicitly. And yet his wife comes and said, oh, he tried to sleep with me, he did this, he did that. And Potiphar's got to be thinking, that doesn't sound like the Joseph I know. But it sure sounds like the wife I know. All right, She's clearly had other affairs and different things. And so rather than having him executed immediately, i got to do something, put him in prison. The minute he gets in prison, the head of the prison guard puts Joseph in charge of everything because he sees the Lord is with him. There's something about consistent character 
in life that causes people to take note. It, it's just there. It's just there. And this story simply reflects what that character really looks like. It just isn't some moralistic tale. It's what it looks like to walk with God. And so here we see that the, the sentence is pretty light. The Lord is with him four different times, two at the very beginning and two at the end of this particular chapter. He's on a strange path to greatness. This is a very circuitous route to greatness. So, lessons to be learned from this particular portion of Scripture. How obedience to God brings us into favor with man. Obedience to God brings us into favor with man. All of us have many times been obedient and not found that to be true. Joseph did not find that to be true. Not right away. But he was absolutely convinced that God was sovereignly in charge. He absolutely was convinced. And if you pause and look at your own life, as I can look at mine and say, there have been times when I knew I was doing what was right, when I, when I honored the Lord, and something really bad happened. And this is why the psalmist says, have you cast us off forever? Why does this keep happening? This is why Asaph in Psalm 73 is complaining about wicked people prospering. He's thinking, I'm doing what is right. Nothing is going well. That's how we naturally think. Joseph isn't thinking that way. Whether or not this dream that he had that his family would bow down was so strong in his mind that he knew it was going to come to pass. But still, he could have been thinking, did I just imagine that? Look at what's happening to me. This doesn't look like a, like a, a road to greatness. This is a disaster. And so, obedience to the Lord often, not always, will bring us into favor with men. Generally true. Character is a long obedience in the same direction. It was Eugene Peter that, Peterson that talked about obedience, a long obedience in the same direction. I'm going to call that character. Character is a is a, a long obedience a throughout lifetime in the same direction. He never lost sight of kept keeping his mind focused on the one true God, Yahweh, Jehovah God. And God, you, you're going to just see as this whole account unfolds all the way to chapter 50, this man is raised up and put in a place that there was no possible way this could have possibly happened. Thirdly, each crisis revealed new character in his life. Because he wasn't a chameleon. You know, you can, you can have integrity uh, and, and pay your taxes, but cheat on your wife or your husband. You, you, uh, not, excuse me, not integrity. You can have honesty. Integrity is the complete person. Honesty can be in just certain areas. You can be honest with your taxes and cheat in other areas. That's the chameleon. But integrity is the full person. This was a man of integrity. Consider this. In duty, he was loyal, no matter where he was. If his father told him to do something, he did it. In duty, he was loyal. In temptation, he was strong. In prison, he was faithful, which we'll see, Lord willing, next week. You see this? It's consistent all the way through. Character is consistent in all circumstances of life. It isn't just this circumstance or that circumstance. It is all throughout life that it must be consistent. He was consistent in his character with Potiphar, with Potiphar's wife, with the guard, with the prison guards, with Pharaoh, all throughout his life. That's what it looks like to be consistent with character. No such thing as sinning in the dark. 
No such thing as sinning alone. No such thing. No such thing. God is there. Geographically present. We can't flee from His geographical presence, but we can flee from the presence of His moral desire, His ethical desire in our life. He saw God present in every situation. Nobody's ever in the dark and nobody's ever alone. God is there. Joseph's identity was in the Lord. You know, the definition of sin in Scripture is, it's often referred to as missing the mark, having a, a, an arrow and shooting at a bullseye and, and missing it. But it's also referred to in 1 John as a, a, a violation of the law or a transgression of the law. But what is the law? What does it mean to miss the mark? To miss the mark means not to be human the way God intended you to be human. It means not to be like Jesus, and none of us ever will be. That's missing the mark. Because here's where Joseph really got his strength. You hear this over and over again. People today are finding identity. There's an identity crisis in our land. Gender identity, materialistic identity, looks identity, money identity, job identity. All those identities come and go, all right? Joseph's identity was in the Lord. Today, we think of our identity is in Christ. This is what you see the Apostle Paul speaking of. I'm crucified, yet no longer I live, but Christ lives in me in the life that I now live. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's identity, all right? This isn't just a nice moral story about how somebody fled from lust. This is an account of a person that had an identity in the good news of the gospel. He believed that God, Jehovah God, if he knew much about Christ at all, we don't know, but he certainly knew the sovereign God of the universe was his Savior. This was his identity. And that identity is what made the character in his life so consistent. He wasn't a chameleon. Identity is the huge issue. And there's an identity issue every single place we, we turn. So it isn't just missing the mark or transgression. It's missing being the person God created us to be or to be Christ-like. Nobody will ever live up to that, ever, which is why Christ did, which is why you see the gospel portrayed all through here. We don't just believe the gospel just to get into the kingdom. Now, when I use the word gospel, if you happen to be here today and you have never put your faith in Christ or this whole identity issue, you may not be grasping, it's this. If your identity is in how much money you're making, or your identity is in, in, in your job security, or your identity is whether or not you're, you're moving up the ranks, or your identity is in your family, or, or whatever you know, makes you feel like what you are, all of that eventually passes away. The identity we're talking about is an eternal identity. It's in what we refer to as the gospel. When a person believes that Christ died and was buried and rose again the third day and paid the penalty for their sin, their identity is in that message. It's called the gospel. That's the good news. Unfortunately, too many of us as Christians, we put that aside and think, oh, that was great for the moment that I believed, now I can move on. No. For the gospel is the power of God into salvation to all who believe. And that salvation takes you out of the kingdom of darkness, puts you into the kingdom of God's dear Son, and gives you the grace and the power to be consistent in your character. This is not just some nice moral story. This is the power of the gospel working in a man's life, and it reflects or it moves ahead, it sort of foreshadows the person of Christ. That's what it looks like. And that's what our identity has to be in. So if you've never put your faith in Christ, your identity is someplace else. And your identity 
will eventually become your idolatry if it's not Christ. So I would ask, I would plead with you, if you do not know Jesus Christ, that today would be the day that you would find your identity in Him as the only one that can save you. And if you are a believer, that you would continue to find your identity in Him because this will give you consistent character. And that character will bring you into favor of mankind. And that character will cause people to want to know who is this God that you believe in. And that character will give you a platform to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the great privilege uh, that we have to open up your word and to see what you have to say about salvation and about life. You tell us that you wrote this book to make us wise unto salvation. Oh, Lord, may not one person leave here today without putting their full confidence, hope, and trust in Jesus. Not themselves, not their good works, not their church membership, but Christ and Christ alone, that they might pass from death unto life. So, Father, thank you for this time to open your word. Thank you for all that you have done and for what you will do. We'll give you all the glory in Christ's name. Amen.